Hear the word of the Lord to us from 1 Timothy 6. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Thank you, Cynthia. Good morning. I have a mic that works this week, I think. No static, hopefully. What do you long for? If you really look at your own heart, what do you really, really long for deep in your own heart? Have you really thought about it much? I'm not talking about the longing for a Boise State win or sunshine, (laughs) summer. Those are legitimate longings, but I'm talking about the deeper longings of your hearts. You may not have thought about it much, but advertisers have. (laughs) In fact, they have a pretty clear picture of the longings that drive the human heart. Watch commercials. TV ads, the pop-ups on your smartphone or on your computer. And you'll see that they are doing their best to connect the longings of your heart, longings for happiness, for love, for belonging, for security, for status or glory for a sense of value, for adequacy, for significance, these deep longings of the human heart that God placed there. Advertisers do a great job connecting their products with those longings. Buy this car, and the neighbors will be envious. (laughs) Drink this beer. And you'll have friends and you'll finally belong. 
buy this cell phone and, or eat this hamburger and you'll finally have a smile on your face. <laughs> Use this drug and life will be great. We could go on and on, but it's all designed to make us discontent with our lives. To make us feel like, oh yeah, that's what I long for and I'm missing some of that and so, wow, maybe I need that product to be whole, healthy, happy, etc. James Speth, who is a Professor Vermont Law School comments that the average child in the United States today sees 20,000 commercials annually. Ads have invaded every space of our lives. It's almost impossible to get away from them. The professor goes on to say, we've channeled our desires, our insecurities, our need to demonstrate our worth and our success, our wanting to fit in and are wanting to stand out, we've channeled these increasingly into material things. Bigger homes, fancier cars, more appliances and gadgets, and branded apparel. But in the process, we're sliding the precious things that no market can provide. But, hey, we're all Christians, right? We see through all that blatant manipulation, right? doesn't affect us. <laughs> Wrong. Every one of us in this room swims in this culture. We live in it to the point where we're not even aware of how much it actually influences us. We're caught in it and we don't even see it. N.T. Wright comments this way. It is hardly an exaggeration to say that this famous passage is an indictment of modern Western culture. Never before in history has there been such a restless pursuit of riches by more and more highly developed means. Never before has the love of money been elevated to the highest and greatest good. So that if someone asks you, why did you do that? And you responded, because I could make more money that way. That would be the end of the conversation. Never before have so many people tripped over one another in their eagerness to get rich and thereby impaled themselves on the consequences of their own greed. Most of us, in fact, I could say all of us, have been brainwashed by our culture along with the rest of society, and we end up living like the world around us as consumers. We've been labeled as consumers by our government and by our businesses. That's what we are. And so we're caught up in seeking to have the longings of our heart, those deep longings, met with money and possessions, even though we know in our heads as believers that all those deepest longings for security, for love, for belonging, for meaning, for value, for significance are meant to be found in Christ and in Christ alone and nowhere else. But though we know that, it's hard to live that way from the heart. 
So in our passage today, Paul returns to the false teachers. When we began this book of 1 Timothy, he talked a lot about false teachers and how they were influencing the people. And in our passage today, he returns to them because they were disrupting the church in Ephesus. And so he left Timothy to set things in order. He reveals to us what their motives were as people. And then he gives a strong warning as a result of what he says about the false teachers to us about the danger of loving money. This is a warning we all need to hear and to heed because we live in a culture that influences us so powerfully with its materialism. Pray with me. Oh, Father, as we listen to your word this morning, as we dig in together, as your people speak to us, and not just to our heads, but to our hearts. Set us free from a culture that has so entrapped us with its materialism. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. He begins with describing the false teachers by what they teach. Verse 3, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound or healthy words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. And then he goes on. So what do false teachers teach? What do we need to watch out for even today among false teachers? Well, it says they teach other doctrines. (laughs) Other doctrines then are clearly in the Scriptures. They go beyond. They go outside of what the Scriptures teach. And in particular, he says, they don't align with the teaching about Jesus and who Jesus is and who the Scriptures clearly state Jesus is. And they don't align with the teaching that leads to godliness, he says. Let's look at these together a little bit. This is very helpful, I think, to help us understand false teaching, to have some discernment when we're hearing teaching. First, Does it focus on the truth about Jesus and what he taught? In other words, is it based on the gospel, the basic truth of the gospel? Remember, this is a book that helps us understand what it means to be a gospel-centered church. What is the basic gospel? Well, we could look all the way through Scripture, obviously, but let me just highlight a couple of passages from this book. 1 Timothy, back in chapter 1. Verse 15, Paul wrote, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. You see, the basic gospel about Jesus and who he is is that he came to save sinners and I am one, Paul says. If you understand the gospel, that will be your perspective. Jesus came to die for our sins. He rose again. He conquered death. He conquered our sins through the cross. You see, any true teaching is always going to focus on Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, that he is both Savior and Lord. Chapter 2, verse 3, he says this, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, 
who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Any true teaching about Jesus will always focus on the cross and what he did, and that he is both Savior and Lord. He bought us by his blood. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Folks, today there are many false teachers, just as there were in Paul's day. False teachers may talk about Jesus, but they teach a different Jesus. There are teachings out there that say, well, Jesus, yeah, he's, he's a mediator. He's one way to God. But he's just another God, and we can be gods too. That's another Jesus. That's false teaching. Some teach about the good man Jesus. He's a great example for us. We should try to live like him because he was a good moral person and we should live that way, but they leave out the cross and how you cannot approach God apart from faith in him, in his death for you. People who teach the good man Jesus are false teachers. Some teach the therapeutic Jesus. All they talk about is that Jesus came to heal you, to heal your wounds, to make you whole, to give you uh, abundant, that kind of abundant life, which means life's going to work now. You can deal with your pain, deal with your hurts. And that's all they talk about. That's part of the truth, right? Jesus did come to heal. But if they don't get to the cross, and that healing can only come by surrendering ourselves to him as Lord and coming to him, to deal with our sin and bring us forgiveness, then it's false teaching. Some teach the social action Jesus. Jesus came to make a difference, to break down the social structures that do harm and oppression in our culture, and therefore we need to live that way too. But if that's all you hear, that's another Jesus. Some teach the health and wealth Jesus. That Jesus came to make your life on earth better. You can have health, you can have wealth if you just have enough faith. There are many who are teaching this health and wealth gospel. That's another Jesus. That's false teaching. There's elements of truth in all of these. But healthy teaching, Paul says, always focuses on the true gospel, the true Jesus that we're sinners and Jesus came to die for our sins, rose again, and is now Lord. So the second guideline, that's the first guideline. What do they teach about Jesus? If you want to be discerning about teaching. Secondly, does it lead to godliness? Real Christ-likeness, real devotion to God. The end of verse 5, he says, excuse me, verse uh, (laughs) 1, 3. I'm there. I can find it. It accords with the teaching that accords with godliness. What does it lead to? Does it lead to true devotion to God? The word godliness has to do with moral righteousness, Christ-likeness, but even more so a devotion to God where your heart is taken up by Him and you're learning to live your life in surrender to Him. That's what that word godliness is really referring to. So look at the fruit 
of the teaching? What are the people becoming under this person's teaching? But Paul now goes on to talk about the heart, the motives of a false teacher, what drives these false teachers of Ephesus and the false teachers today. He mentions two motives. The first one is pride. Verse 4, he is puffed up with conceit. Puffed up with conceit. The word there means to be puffed up like a puff of smoke. Where you look and you see this big puff of smoke, but it doesn't have any substance to it. That's this picture of pride being puffed up, but, but there's no real meaning to it. There's no substantiation for it. You can't see reality. Your head's in the clouds. You're prideful. Pride makes you crazy, makes you not able to see reality about yourself or about others of the, or the world around you. Notice the results of pride. He says, they're puffed up and he understands nothing. Now, isn't that ironic? Because someone who's proud thinks they get it, thinks they really understand more than others. But pride blinds you like a plane flying in the clouds and can't see anywhere else. That's what pride does. You get so high on yourself that you are blinded and can't see reality. You think you know it all, but you're mistaken. You think you see clearly, but you're a fool. He understands nothing, he says. The second result of living pridefully, he says, is that he has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, suspicions, constant friction, etc. You see, pride, and you've noticed this about pride, proud people, right? They want to prove themselves right. They want to argue. They want to convince you that they're right. They want to do battle. They want to prove everyone else wrong. Now, we all fall into this at times. We want to feed our own pride, but the false teachers do this especially. I, I think of some of the most brilliant Bible scholars I have personally known and I've looked up to at their Bible knowledge way beyond me. But several of them, not all, but several of them have given way to pride. They felt like, yeah, I know it all. What happens inevitably, and I've seen this over and over again, is they begin to think they can figure out God, they can figure it all out, and they especially pick out one area where they think they understand it, and they push that, and they push that into error. So it goes beyond what scriptures teach. Instead of having a heart of submission to the fact that we are finite creatures and we don't get it all. We can't figure it all out. (laughs) There is a lot about truth that is beyond us. There are some basic truths we can say, I know that. But there's an awful lot that is mystery. It's seeming paradox. And the more we try to figure this out, free will versus predestination, etc. If we try to figure all these kinds of major doctrines out that seem contradictory and we come up with our understanding, we will be in error because we cannot grasp these things with our own minds. And the result is, it says, they end up craving controversy, fighting to push their own point of view, and the result is divisiveness, envy, battles. It harms 
the church of Jesus Christ. It doesn't lead to godliness. It leads to division. And so much of the division of the church has been a result of this kind of pride. The second motive that destroys, that is leading these false teachers, is greed. The end of verse 5 where he says, they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. You see, they think that I can use my religiosity, my understanding of truth, for my own personal gain. Now, in their day, in Ephesus, part of what was happening is they were traveling around these false teachers and they were collecting money. They were actually on the speaker's tour. It was a big deal in those days, like it is today. And they would command huge honorariums, huge fees to speak. They used it for their own personal gain. But I think Paul has in mind beyond money that they had this attitude that, hey, this can make my life better. I can get power and status, money, all these things. We've seen the same thing in our day, right? It happens in megachurches. It happens in a lot of places. It happens among TV preachers that we've seen who have amassed huge fortunes off the donations of the poor through their false teaching. Many of them teach the prosperity or health and wealth gospel. It's described this way. Prosperity theology or the health and wealth gospel is a Christian religious doctrine, quasi-Christian, let me say, that financial blessing is the will of God for Christians and that faith, positive speech, and donations to Christian ministries will increase one's material wealth. But the doctrine emphasizes the importance of personal empowerment, proposing it's God's will for people to be rich and healthy. There are many teachers like that today, folks. This is false teaching. It does great harm. Don't support their ministries. It's true that Jesus offers abundant life. They define it as health and wealth. The Bible defines the abundant life as the life of Jesus himself. And the life of Jesus doesn't lead us to avoid suffering. In fact, the life of Jesus gives us the power to endure it with grace, reflecting the very heart of God to the world around us. That's the abundant life. So Paul is so concerned that the Ephesian church is following into following these false teachers in greed he gives them now a strong warning about the dangers of greed or the love of money. In verse 9 and 10, jumping down there, he says this, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Notice it's not having money that Paul says is a problem. That's not the issue. It's the desire, it's the craving, it's the love of money. It doesn't matter how much you have. 
You can be discontent. You can love money. What's dangerous is the love of money. Desiring to be rich, he says, wanting just a little more and striving for that causes you to fall into a snare, he says. All kinds of dangers that that begin to take over your life because money is a poor master. It will enslave you. It will never satisfy your heart because you can never have enough and it will enslave you and move you away from a devotion to God. If you give in to the lust for more, it becomes your master. And as Nelson Rockefeller, one of the richest men of the world, famously said when asked, how much does it take to be happy? He said, a little more. A little more. You see, it can never satisfy your heart. It's subject, just like drugs and other addictions, to the law of diminishing returns. The more you have, the more you need. Never satisfies. And notice in verse 10, it says, the love of money, now this is literally what it says in the Greek, the love of money is a root of all the evils. The love of money is a root of all the evils. This phrase has been often misunderstood. Let me explain it to you. Again, it's talking about the love of money. And if you picture all the evils as a tree, a visible tree, and all the evils are displayed on there, seven deadly sins and all the others too. One of the roots of that tree, not the only root, but one of the roots, one of the primary roots is the love of money. What does he mean? Well, think about it with me for a minute. What drives the sex trade? Love of money. What drives drug trafficking? Love of money. What drives most wars between nations? Love of money. Why does our government often step in to defend people that are being harmed in certain circumstances but not in others? We're protecting our economic interests, right? <laughs> Love of money. Many murders. What causes them? What's behind them? Love of money. Burglaries, obviously. Love of money. Family fights. Love of money. Many marriage struggles. What's behind them? The love of money. John Stott explains further. What then are the evils which the love of money is a major root or cause? A long list could be given. Avarice leads to selfishness, cheating, fraud, perjury and robbery, to envy, quarreling and hatred, to violence and even murder. Greed lies behind marriages of convenience, perversions of justice, drug pushing, pornography sales, blackmail, the exploitation of the weak, the neglect of good causes. Think about that. Love of money, because we're caught up in our own selfishness. Blackmail, betrayal of friends, etc. As somebody came up to me, in between services and said, yeah, and even the late night Bronco games. Why are they so late? Love of money, yeah. 
The love of money controls the false teachers and it destroys the faith of many, Paul says. When we give in to the craving for things, he says it's like stabbing yourself in the heart. That's what he says. With deep grief and pain. So how can we as believers break free from the love of money? How can we learn true contentment which leads to true joy and abundant life, the kind of life that Jesus really wants us to have? How can we experience that? How can we learn the secret of contentment that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 4, where he says in verse 11, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever circumstances I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. How can we learn that secret? Because folks, if you really want gain in your life, if you want a sense of freedom in your life, freedom from this materialistic culture, you've got to learn the secret of contentment. How can you learn that? Let me give you six helps towards learning contentment. Number one, be thankful. Be thankful. (laughs) Seems simple. But we're told over and over again in Scripture, we're commanded to be thankful for all things. Be thankful in all things. How can we foster that kind of thankfulness? Well, be gripped by the Gospel. I'm a sinner. And as a sinner, I deserve nothing good. In fact, what I deserve is hell. But Jesus has given me life. And therefore, everything I have is a gift. That takes away this sense of entitlement, this demandingness that I need more. Life should work for me. You see, when you realize you deserve nothing, but Christ has given you all of Himself. And He's promised to care for you and provide for you and meet your needs, then you can live a life of thankfulness. First help, be thankful. Second, focus on the value of contentment. Verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. If you realize that contentment brings great gain in your life, a sense of wholeness and of peace and of joy in your life. It brings freedom from those cravings. It gives you intimacy with Jesus, a taste of His life, His abundant life. You realize, wow, contentment is worth it and I want to live with contented heart, not a craving heart. The third help Paul gives us in this passage is remember that you can't take it with you. (laughs) So what he says, verse 7, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. As Job says, Naked I came, naked I shall return. It's not true, as the old t-shirt used to say, He who dies with the most toys wins. No, the truth is, He who dies with the most toys dies empty. Penniless. I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. <laughs> Can't take it with you. Someone well said, no one dies a millionaire. 
We all die penniless. Everybody. So remember, you can't take it with you. So why waste your life acquiring? Fourth, help. Know that the basic necessities are all you need to be happy. This is really important for us in our culture. Know that the basic necessities are all you need to be happy. That's what he says in verse 8. But if we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. All we need is food and clothing and I would add shelter. (laughs) But if you have your basic needs met, you can be content. How many of you have been on a short-term mission with Cole? Or with somebody else? Many of you have. My experience on short-term missions, and I think many of you have come back and said this, is that you go and you go serve people who have nothing. And yet they are far happier than we are. There's a much deeper joy, and people always come back saying, I I don't get it. How can they be so happy when they don't have anything? Because they know this principle. All you need is your basic needs to be met, to learn contentment. You do not need more than that. It doesn't take much to be content. It doesn't depend on how much you have. That's important to remember. The fifth help. Know that loving money destroys lives. That's what he says in verse 9 and 10. It, it destroys your life. It destroys spiritual life. destroys your intimacy with God. It does great harm. We know of people like Jay Gould, one of the richest Americans in the 19th century, said on his deathbed, I'm the most miserable devil in the world. Now, you may be thinking, yeah, but I'm not rich like him. I just want a little more. (laughs) Just a little more. That is the love of money. That is what destroys life and spiritual life. So Paul's warning us. The Scriptures are telling us, God is telling you and me today, speaking to my own heart, don't live for the love of money. It destroys life. And then the final help, flee and pursue. (laughs) Verse 11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, these cravings, this love of money, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. When you sense yourself craving something, reading an ad or seeing a commercial and think, wow, I'd really like to have that. Flee it. Run from it. Get away from that. And then secondly, replace it with pursuing godliness, realizing that you can't take any of those material things with you, but your godly character, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, these amazing character traits, the Christ-likeness, you can take with you. These are the things that will last forever. Is it okay to have things? Sure, they're a gift from God. And in a couple weeks, the passage at the end of the book will give us some insight and some help into how to deal with what we have. But the danger, no matter how much you have, is that the love of money will consume you and destroy you if you give into it. It destroyed the false teachers. It led them astray. It was destroying the church. 
in Ephesus, we must guard our hearts, brothers and sisters, from the craving materialism. We are in the midst of this Christmas season that is driving us into discontentment. This sense that it's such a good deal, how can I pass it up? Such a lie. And we must commit to a moderate lifestyle. (laughs) What does that look like? Well, you you can be creative, pray about it, think about it, but think about living a generous life. Share things. As somebody I heard of, they, they wouldn't buy anything for themselves or their house without giving away two things that are more expensive. That's a great guideline. My brother and his kids for many years, I'm not sure they're still doing it, but they had dollar Fridays. One of them would take turns cooking dinner. Three kids. So for the five of them, they could not spend more than one dollar on dinner for the whole family. They ate a lot of ramen, (laughs) canned beans. But then they would take what they would have spent on a normal dinner and saved it up. And then at the end of the year, they were able to, as a family, and what a lesson for the kids, give all that money to buy a goat or a cow or a sheep or chickens or whatever through World Relief or some of these other agencies where you can buy for the poor in Africa or a place where they really need something. What a great lesson. There's all kinds of practical ways you can do this, but it's so critical that we learn to live a life free from the love of money. And it's hard. We're going to take communion now. And communion is a great reminder that we are but sinners saved by grace. We deserve nothing. Everything is a gift. And it's in being gripped by what Jesus did on the cross that we can be most free from the love of money. Pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for your great gift of life you've given us in the cross. May we learn to be completely content with that. And may you free us from the strivings of this world that try to convince us so hard that we need more possessions, more money, more stuff to be content. Free us from that lie. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm Josh, and I'm the growth group's pastor here at Cole. And uh, we're going to do something a little bit different, not very different for communion this morning. But I am um, going to be leading us in communion, not as, the, as a pastor, but as um, a member of my growth group. And my growth group is going to be serving communion to us this morning. C- communion is the community meal of the people of God. And <clears throat> our growth group's ministry we see as the community ministry, one of the community key community ministries of Cole Community Church. So our growth group will be serving you this morning. We are not trained professionals, so just keep that in mind. Give us a little, or as Bridget said, first service, a lot of grace, um, please. And I invite and challenge other growth groups, uh, if you want to do the same, you're free to contact me, and we would love to get you uh, serving or leading or both. Uh, communion for the, um, the congregation, uh, if you want to do that. Communion is a time where we remember that all that we have, we can take in in Christ. All that we need is available to us by Christ's resources in us. Uh, we eat his body and we drink his blood, and that's 
all that we need. We can be content uh, in his good gifts to us. So we will take communion together. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, the body of Christ given for you. We'll now take the cup together and remember that we're all sinners. We're all in this together. We all struggle with greed in this culture. We all struggle with the love of money. But his resources are enough for us. He, for, he has forgiven us uh, by his blood poured out for us. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The blood of Christ shed for you. Just a reminder that they'll be taking the fellowship offering in the back as you leave, uh, an op- opportunity for us to um, put off the love of money and put on righteousness, pursue righteousness uh, in our lives. Please stand to receive the benediction. So be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then don't be foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine or the love of money, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, who is the Father. Amen. Go in peace.